Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Amanda Lodge-Stewart. Amanda is a director at the Link Training Academy, an SME private training provider registered on the ROATP, which delivers apprenticeships in West Yorkshire, primarily in Kirklees and Calderdale. Um, Amanda, welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Scott. It's great to be here on this lovely morning. We're looking forward to our chat. Yeah, of course. First um, full day of summer, I suppose, and it's turned into a lovely day for it. Um, I suppose we should start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that is the fact that we are recording this podcast on the 21st of June 2021. Um, So it's what should have been Freedom Day, but that's, of course, been pushed back by four weeks. Not necessarily the lengthiest delay, but we are still living under some form of social restrictions, aren't we? And we have been now for the best part of the last 14 months. So we've all felt the hit of the COVID-19 pandemic, but for yourselves as a private training provider to SMEs, how has it affected you in your operations? Um, over the last 12, well, 14, 12 to 14 month period, we've gone through a catastrophic change in the way that we deliver our apprenticeship. We've tried our absolute hardest to keep everybody on programme and everybody engaged throughout the whole period. The majority of our um, apprentices are 16 to 18. We've got a few that are over, over 19, but the majority are 16 to 18. And for us, they have been one of the hardest hit age groups because the life changed so significantly from leaving school. So with the safeguarding issues have gone up. We've really tried to engage and keep, keep them online and keep contact with them throughout the whole of the period. An issue, one of the main issues that we've had, of course, is that the majority of our provision is Henderson and Barbary. We haven't been able to do any practical at all. And most of the learners that are doing Henderson and Barbary tend to be very practical and hands-on learners. So again, that's been another real, real challenge to keep them interested and motivated throughout the period. So we've gone on to online learning. We've been doing online quizzes. We've been doing online classroom settings. All new to the staff, all new to the students. We've found that we've been handing out laptops to students that haven't got them at home so that they can engage with us. We've been driving around, dropping off paper workbooks to the ones that are struggling to get online because they're just not used to it. The staff have had to be retrained to use online. We've got online protocols that we've had to sort of decide and write up really quickly to say what's acceptable and what's not. So, for example, we don't want students in the bedrooms with dressing gowns on while they're entering a classroom session. And likewise, for staff have got to look professional and presentable all this has been absolutely brand new and I have to say that the staff and and the team that we've been working with have been outstanding in their approach and and sort of the innovation that's come through from the team to be able to engage and do this has been great challenging time uh, quite a lot of the staff members have got young children so they've been homeschooling at the same time as trying to learn all these new skills so yes 
a big change for us, Scott, a big change through this period. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that's been the case. And I can imagine that when it comes to delivering sort of education in the way that you do, people have talked a lot about the impact of sort of remote education and learning and how that has sort of helped keep it going over the pandemic. As you say, you talk about practicals there. It isn't a one size fits all approach, is it? And even though technology may have more of a part to play in the day to day sort of running of education in particular, like you need that sort of face-to-face contact. You need people in sort of classroom settings together and sort of doing things, don't you? And it's bringing that back that's sort of been the challenge. And hopefully as we sort of keep moving out of social restrictions, there will be the room to sort of have that environment back. And I think as well, the sort of social side of being together in a learning environment I think we missed that, haven't we? I think we sort of took that social interaction side of things for granted pre-pandemic, and that has a lot to do with sort of our mental health and well-being as well. So it is something that we need going forward. Absolutely. And I think particularly for our sector, it's, it's 90% is about the way that we communicate with our clients. And students have, since we've come back um, and we've been allowed to reopen and, and retrain face-to-face, noticeably students have lost confidence noticeably they they haven't got that that skill to be able to communicate with multiple clients and with each other this really had an impact on those those skills that would have automatically grown and i think especially for the ones that left school in september they've had the majority of the year on remote learning and getting back into a salon setting and into a classroom setting has been really, really challenging. Mm. And we've found that sort of mentally a lot of our students have struggled. We've had a lot more incidents of, of safeguarding and mental health problems. And if students just not being able to cope with getting out there and being out there because they have lost confidence. So we're working on that as well as practical skills. So impact on sort of end dates and getting through the endpoint assessment exams have been significantly delayed because of confidence and communication skills, not just practical skills and practical ability. Mm. So that's had, that's had an impact. But we are working really hard with our students to try and build that confidence and working with our local employers as well to sort of outline what they can do to support our students to help build that confidence. Yeah, definitely. And I've noticed as well that your sort of largest provision for education is in sort of hairdressing and barbering, that sort of profession. And that's gone through its own turbulent period due to the lockdown and forced PPE usage and various other issues that have been brought on by COVID. Have you Mm -hmm. seen that there's still the same level of interest to move into those sorts of careers, considering what the pandemic has done to that profession? I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is it made people realise how important our sector is. Mm. And it's been one of, as, as sort of with the, the catering and the and the sort of hospitality industry, hairdressing and barbering has been one of the, missed, the most missed sectors during lockdown. And people have really noticed that they haven't been able to go. Men and women and children and teenagers alike have all missed the industry. So I think it's raised the profile a little bit of who we are and what we are and the, the contribution that we do make to our local community within the setting of the salon. For us this year, there's been an awful lot of interest and I think the incentive grant, £4,000 incentive grant for the 15 to 18, has mm. been a huge, enormous bonus and employers are really 
looking to take apprentices because of the grant and we're sort of working towards we've just we've just extended the deadline as far as I know but sort of working towards that deadline because that's been a real real benefit so there has been a little bit of a sort of a raise in the profile however on the other end of the spectrum a lot of a lot of qualified hairdressers and barbers are self-employed and that's put an awful lot of people off mm. carrying on in the industry so it's identified a skills gap of qualified good experienced stylists within the sector as well so a lot of salons are looking for stylists and a lot of experienced stylists have gone into other sectors because of the lockdown and the impact it's had on the lack of money that they've had during that period so there's been sort of changes on both ends of the spectrum due to the covid yeah, there has. And there are a couple of important things to mention uh, there. Firstly, of course, um, the importance of this industry to mental health, because as we've seen salons reopening, we have seen exactly right um, how important they are to communities. They become sort of social hubs for people to go and interact with others. Um, it's also important for people's sort of self-esteem to be able to go and have a haircut and feel good, look good again, looking in the mirror. So it is vital but also as well we've seen as you said there um how people are moving out of the sector because maybe there have been sort of gaps in the sort of government support that's been there for particularly the self-employed and um, from your experience um, are you sort of satisfied with the levels of support that your organization has had throughout the crisis just because there's been a lot made of that i think for us we've we've managed to carry on turning throughout most of the pandemic and we've just done it remotely mm. the biggest impact is now that we've got an awful lot of apprentices past end date which is affecting our recruitment for this year's intake and we're actually looking for additional staff at the moment to support because we're going to have a lot more students in september than we normally would because we've got a lot that are past fund end and i'm still paying my staff to support those students they've done all their underpinning knowledge they've done a lot of the you know skilled practice and the behaviours practice but the behaviours have really really struggled so we really are focusing in on those behaviours parts of the apprenticeship now and it's costing me as a training academy my money without government support so if anything I prefer I would like some recognition of the additional workload that it's created for us at the end of the funding to, to support us with that but no I think we've done incredibly well I think we're going to see the loss of income now and between now and sort of October, November time when we're trying to get those learners ready for their employment investment. And of course, a lot of the businesses that you work with, particularly in the hairdressing industry, they are eagerly looking forward to the lifting of all social restrictions so that they can welcome full capacity back. Enforced PPE mm -hmm. usage is no longer a thing. But do you think that maybe one or two of the sort of social restrictions that have come about over the lockdown, so for example, maybe sanitizer stations being there and present in salons, do you think things like that are likely to perhaps remain in place because just because they are beneficial and for customers to go in and use yeah i think that i think the hairdressing industry the hairdressing sector and the beauty sector have always been really aware of sanitization um, and sterilization sterilizing tools and keeping things clean and part of the knowledge has always been cross-contamination and cross-infection and how to prevent and reduce that risk as much as possible so i think it's something that we've always done and we've always been aware of but i think what we're doing now is we are sort of jazz hands in that to the public of additional measures that we are taking to keep our our clients and our staff safe throughout this period. 
And I think that's something that will continue. I think, we, I think nobody will dispute we can't wait to not have to wear masks or visors because that's really, really impacting the way we communicate with clients. And we can't wait to get back to the point where we can have clients communicating with each other in the salon, sat next to each other and starting conversations and that opportunity to meet new people. And I think that goes across all customer service sectors where it's been so individualised you haven't had the opportunity to meet and greet new people. I think we are sort of outgoing people generally as services mm. and and we just want to get back to that socialising again. Really miss it. Really, really miss it. Well, of course, 19th of July is the new freedom date. So four weeks away from today, as we record this, hopefully there'll be no more delays to that. Um, so hopefully that we'll see that return um, in the, uh, the weeks ahead. And as we then start to hopefully move out of COVID and into the post-pandemic world, if you like, Amanda, um, what do you see coming on the horizon for your organisation and the industries that you work in? And where ideally would you like yourselves to be this time next year as we sort of embrace the post-pandemic world? I think for us, we've, we've been growing and we've diversified um, into other sectors. Before the pandemic, it was part of the business planning. And during the pandemic, we've grown into delivering sort of business admin and management um, apprentices within other other areas, particularly the help we're working with a big, um, one of the big local hospitals in the health service, delivering business admin and management and coaching qualifications with them. And we've seen a real upturn in levy-paying employers looking for apprentices, as well as the non-levy hairdressing and barbering sector. So we are growing into other areas and quite enjoying that change of that and that diverse delivery that we've got going on and being able to bring back what we learned from big levy-paying employers and sort of enrich and embed that into our small non-levy, non-levy employers and help with that business planning and skills, skills gap analysis with smaller employers. So we are looking for growth. We are, fingers crossed, the hairdressing and barbering sector will get back to the buoyant place that it once was. Um, we're looking to seriously sort of increase the level of skill and ability. And I think the new employment assessment and the new apprenticeship standards are really adding value to what apprentices can, apprenticeships can offer to the hairdressing and barbering sector, as well as all other sectors, because that Endpoint exam is really, really a really valuable skills assessment tool to see what that apprentice can do. And, you know, the ones that are coming out with distinctions and, and passes, it's a real celebration for them when they've managed to achieve that. So I think the value that employers see in apprentices is growing as well. And I know when I go around and talk to our local employers and talk them through how the knowledge, skills and behaviours have been put together for that apprenticeship standard and how real hairdressers and barbers have sat around a table and, and debated what apprentices need for that sector. They've really, really appreciated it and they're really enjoying the, sort of the, the quality of the new apprenticeship standard I have found within the sector. So hopefully that will help to raise the profile of the sector as well um, at, the end of, at the end of the pandemic. If the pandemic's ever going to end, we don't really know, do we? We don't know what's around mm. that next corner for us. But mm. hopefully... It's a sector that's valuable. It's a sector that's very much needed. And hairdressing and barbering is a sector that can never be online. It's always going to have to be face-to-face and with social contact. So we're going to hopefully push that and grow and, and get real quality from where what we're doing is what, what we're driving towards. 
real quality and real benefit for our young people and our employers. Yes, absolutely. I think that's incredibly right, Amanda, because apprenticeships of course are being given much more emphasis by the uh, the government now recognition of those practical skills is much much greater and there are so many people as well that are finding themselves out of work during this period and moving into other industries having to upskill that they're going to be so so vital and therefore for educators it is going to be a very interesting and perhaps even a very busy time as we move out of the pandemic isn't it yeah it is it is and as a a training provider there's so many that we're jumping through to make sure that we're hitting Ofsted standards and we're hitting the FFA standards and we're just doing the refresh to go back on the register. So there's an awful lot of energy and effort and knowledge and skill that goes into staying buoyant and sustainable during that period as a provider anyway. But when Ofsted do come in, and we've just just recently had our our new provider monitoring visit from Ofsted a couple of weeks ago, it was a pleasure for us to showcase what we can do and what we're doing with our apprentices um, to, to Ofsted and for somebody actually, you know, to look and say, yeah, you're doing a good job, carry on doing what you're doing. It was just fantastic feedback for us really as a provider during such a difficult time for us, for all the staff and all the LD employees and apprentices that we're working with. It will be, certainly. We are just about out of time, unfortunately, on today's uh, programme, Amanda. But as we actually start to get more of an idea of what the post-COVID world holds for educators like yourselves, I actually think it would be wonderful to just catch up and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are getting on. And we can also then discuss the state of affairs in some of the industries that you're working directly with as well, because there is still a deal of uncertainty there we don't know for sure whether the pandemic will end so it's good to of course just reassess things when the mist starts to clear as it were an absolute pleasure thank you so much Scott. i would enjoy that yeah and I would relish it as well, Amanda, just like I've enjoyed having you on the show today because it's been a real eye-opener from my point of view and I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment as well. And just before we do wrap up, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we are almost there, but we're not quite out of the woods yet, but confident the better days are ahead. Okay, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. It was a pleasure, of course, to welcome Amanda Lodge-Stewart, director at the Link Training Academy in West Yorkshire, onto the programme today. And uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be keeping it educational by welcoming former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett onto the show. He's going to be discussing his take on the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks and months ahead. Um, That is, of course, coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing 
staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time but to others around you and the sector that you're working in that will be really important do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the covid 19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that 
Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually. Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country 
that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, 
experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.